All right, what is up, team? Welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined by both Brian Borstein and Aaron Stryker. Yo, thank you both for being here. Thanks, Thanks for, having, for us. having me, dude. <laughs> of course. So, <laughs> you guys don't mind, Aaron, if you would start off, just give us a quick... You've both been on the show before, Brian. I think you're like the most common recurring guest, actually. No um, way. It's got to be Chaz Spackman. That guy's always on there. I feel like he's on, he's on here every month, so I don't know if he's <laughs> anymore uh second to Chaz, i guess i could say aaron if you wouldn't mind will you just just give us for the listeners who didn't listen to your last episode just a quick 30 second or so intro on who you are and what you're up to yeah so my name is aaron straker i am a uh, sports nutritionist and educator um basically nutrition coach uh kind of bridging the gap with some functional medicine principles understanding your hormones different systems in the body how that applies to your physique and health related goals so what i kind of say to clients is like i'm going to sell you on you know the more muscle the fat loss but then i'm going to sneak in a lot of health principles and make sure that you are doing wonderfully inside and out because it really helps my job when the inside is functioning really really well um so that uh, is basically a high gesture what if what if what i do so, Brian, would you mind taking us through then you as well? For sure. Yeah. I uh, am focused primarily on like the training and programming side of things. Um, I am now, I can officially say, a podcaster with my uh, co-podcast host on this show, Aaron Straker. So we talk about a lot of cool things. Uh, we're a little evidence-based, but we also throw in a lot of anecdotes. So if anyone's interested in checking our podcast out, that would be rad. Um, I own a couple companies, Evolved Training Systems and Paragon Training Methods, and um, Paragon and Evolved both have a bunch of general programs. And then through Evolved, I also do like one-on-one coaching and individualized programming and stuff like that. Perfect. And like I was saying off air, E-Train Prosper, you guys' podcast, I can't recommend enough that everyone go check that out. Straight up, the reason I wanted to have you both on here simultaneously was your conversation around positioning and execution. I saw a bunch of my clients posting that on their Instagram stories. I was getting kind of jealous, so I had to have you guys come on here so <laughs> we can run through something similar again. So. I wanted to start this conversation off. Um, Brian, I'll let you take this away first. How important is, because I think it's important when we get into like, okay, what can we do to better fuel these muscles work, all these different things. How important is the mind-muscle connection in your opinion? So I think that the mind-muscle connection is important, but I think that the mind-muscle connection can confuse you into feeling something that that maybe isn't actually what's happening based on kind of your setup and the way that you you're positioning at the beginning of the movement. Um, so I think that the N one guys have done a really good job of, you know, setting up with that lat focused pull down where the elbow doesn't pass the midline. And if you set up with your torso slightly prone forward so that you're not, you know, back in scap retraction before you even begin the rep. Um, and then if you ensure from that forward prone position that your elbow comes into your waistline and doesn't pass your midline, then at some level, it doesn't really matter if you're feeling your lats work because the movement pattern is being executed in such a manner that that is the actual function of the lat. Um, so I think that up to a point, you know, mind muscle connection can be confusing to people because you could squeeze your muscle in such a manner, even if you're in a non-optimal position to target that specific muscle. And you could, you could trick yourself into thinking that you're actually training the muscle that, that you think you're training. So, um, I would say maybe seven out of 10, if I had to put a score to it, but there's definitely a lot of nuance and, and variation in there. I love it. Aaron, any thoughts on that? I think, you know, in my opinion, it's one of those things that it, before you learn all this, right? Like, so let's say if you never even stumbled upon 
um, and one, or, you know, even we're introduced to this type of world, it's like a step in the right direction, right? Because even using the same example, like Brian saying, the lat pull down, if you're like squeezing and feeling like you're generally going to be getting a better stimulus than as opposed to like, let's say, you know, how we all probably did lat pull downs in high school where you just racked it as heavy as you could and like leaned back really far and we're just like moving as much weight as possible. So I would say it, for a lot of people, it can be a step in the right direction. And then once you are kind of introduced to this whole new world of like, you know, um, better biomechanics and stuff like Brian was talking about, that is going to be much more beneficial. But I think for a lot of people, it's probably like the first step in learning a little bit more. Cool. Let me jump back in real quick. Um, so as one example, so I think that you could have the setup correct. Like I was referencing with that lat pull down, you could have the forward prone torso and the elbow could be tracking in. And then you could turn around and be like, oh, I didn't feel that in my lats. Right. And then it becomes the job of the coach to try and look at the, the subtlety of the movement and figure out what might be happening within the way that you're framing it in your mind. So this is where mind muscle connection is important because you have the setup correct and to the outside, it looks like this should be working your lats, right? Um, but I remember one uh, practical that I was watching. It was like a, an Instagram video through the N1 site or whatever. This was the exact situation, but the person was like, I keep feeling it in my triceps. And what was happening was as they were pulling down like this, instead of driving down with the elbow, they were kind of coming over with the wrist and so they were essentially pushing down at the end of the movement instead of finishing with the elbow driving down. Um, so I think that that's one example where it can look right, but it might not feel right. Absolutely. I've always found it helpful to kind of frame this to clients as mind-muscle connection. Same thing with like getting a decent pump or like a little bit of soreness or disruption in a muscle. Well, those aren't things we like necessarily design the program around. They're kind of the byproduct of us putting muscle in a position to be successful, right? Like they're typically good signs that we're doing something right. Um, but I think that like, like you two alluded to, one mistake people make is often thinking like, okay, I don't feel the muscle working. I just need to like think about it harder. I need to like, squeeze harder, all these things without necessarily like first looking to like, okay, are we actually executing the movement in a manner that should be creating tension with the target muscle? Yeah, totally. And if you even look at, you know, I know you're probably aware of that study that Schoenfeld just put out. I know Aaron and I were talking about it, about how the length and position of the movement was like way more effective than the shortened range or even the full range. So when you think about it from that perspective, when people look at mind muscle connection and they're like mind muscle connection for the bicep, right? What they're feeling is not the stretch position. They're talking about feeling the contracted position when you're up at the top in the shortened range. But now, according to this study, it appears as if that's the least effective range. So it kind of mitigates the need for the, the mind muscle connection focus. Like if you just lengthen a muscle and then flex the muscle, then it's, it's doing the job. It's, it's, it's stretched and then it's contracting, right? So we're going through the length and position. That's more or less what we want to have happen. Okay. I have a little funny uh, story. So with that study that just came out that we were talking about yesterday in my, in my programming, I had uh, leg extensions and with this machine at the, at the gym, you can't, get like the complete length in position and the complete um, mm -hmm. short in position. Like you have to pick one or the other. So what I was doing before, I was like, well, okay, what do I think is going to be more important? I want that peak contraction at the top. So I would set it where I wouldn't really start from like, you know, a complete like, um, you know, hundred degree um, mm -hmm. angle, but I could finish with my, like my knees completely straightened. 
And then after that came out, I'm like, well, I should probably be doing the opposite of what I've been doing. So I set it the other way where I could get like the fully lengthened, but not the fully contracted position. And again, it allowed me to go like a little bit heavier. Um, and it is just kind of interesting that it did kind of influence me. I'm like, well, maybe I, my thoughts have been completely incorrect around uh, how I've been choosing my, you know, what position I could get into really. I think that, that there's funny. a lot of fatigue uh, associated with that as well. Like, do, do like, you know, we know that there's less fatigue in the shortened position and more fatigue in the lengthened position. So I think that that becomes a variable that you can use in programming. Like, okay, maybe I want to get a bunch of, of extra volume in here, but I don't want all of that excessive fatigue and, and strain that comes with it. So maybe you focus on the shortened range, or maybe I only have time for two sets. So I'm really going to overload the lengthened range. Exactly. I feel like this could be a podcast. <laughs> um, I love it. Super insightful. Let's get into muscle groups. And, and Aaron, I'll have you kick this off. Is there one or two muscle groups that you really struggled the most to kind of grow or figure out how to execute in a manner? And of course, all this is going to be specific to hypertrophy, um, just for the listener's sake. Is there one or two muscle groups that you really struggled to like, I can never like feel this muscle group, this muscle group never grows. Anything that comes to mind there? Yeah. I mean, for me, um, quads, uh, easy, e- most easily. And it, I would say it was the, I'm sure there's other ones where I have like, you know, poor physique development in like my hamstrings would be another one where I would say comparatively to the rest of my body aren't great, but I never cared that much about them. So that one kind of is like, you know, a more recent thing. Quads were something for years. I was like, okay, I want bigger legs. Like I want bigger legs. And I just like could not get them to grow. Um, so, I mean, yeah, that's my answer there. Okay. Okay. So Brian was, what's, if there's one standout for you, what would that be? I think that I, I was obviously thinking about this as Aaron was saying his piece. Um, I think I have to say too, as well, I think it's gotta be delts and, uh, and hamstrings. Um, I, I, I just like, I was telling Aaron the other day, I like just in the last delts, Brian. I understand. Look, that's what I'm saying. Maybe my muscle connection doesn't fucking matter. You know what I'm saying? So no, no, no. Check this out. People so, DM me about your delts. <laughs> so, so I, I'm just saying, so like when I'm doing a lateral raise, right, I've been doing lateral raises for over 20 years now. And it wasn't until two, a month or two ago that I finally figured out how to actually make my rep speed slow down on a lateral raise as I get fatigued. Like all it was in the past for the first 20 years of my training was, okay, I'm going to use a, like a 2% more momentum because I just don't want to fight through this like mid range and deal with this like really slow concentric. So I would just kind of do reps and the last rep look like the first rep, but there might be like a little more torso momentum. So the only reason that anyone from the outside would be able to tell that my delt was even fatiguing was because I was grimacing on my face. I was making really loud noises and I would use a little bit more torso momentum toward the end of the set, but the rep speed wouldn't have changed at all. And it was literally just in the last like month or two that I figured out that I can actually grind through lateral delt raises, that it's really, really miserable, but that it can be done. Um, and then and then hamstrings, similarly, um, it wasn't until literally the last couple months that I learned how to fight through the concentric of an RDL and actually let my rep speed slow down versus compromising midline position. So both of those movements, I didn't actually reach a fatigue point. That was the proper way of reaching a fatigue point until recently. And that's, that's saying a lot because it's been a long time that I've been training. Okay. Okay. Let's just, and Aaron, I want to come back to quads here pretty shortly, but let's actually then start this discussion off with delts since we're already pretty deep into that. 
So with Delt specifically, are there a few common mistakes that like you two see or like things that have really helped you in the last few years? Like Brian bringing up your apparently weak delts, um, like any major, like what have been the major realizations or cues or anything, any way you've shifted your training to kind of bring those up? Yeah. Um, so I think the, the notion of getting wide really helps me. Um, kind of like even trying to, if you're doing a dumbbell or a cable or whatever it is, almost the idea of trying to keep the arm down as long as you can. So as that dumbbell or cable is, is ascending out, you're not actually thinking about lifting the arm up as much as you're thinking about driving it out to the side. Um, and I think that that actually makes a difference in where I even feel the movement. So it, it kind of is a little bit lower down in the lateral delt when I think about getting wide and spreading my wings versus more trying to come up, which I feel like resembles more the motion of like an upright row type move. And they're both like really solid lateral delt movements for sure. Um, I just think that when you think about getting wide, spreading your wings, little things like curving the wrist over. I know Aaron's a big fan of kind of finger tipping the dumbbell and mm -hmm. keeping that like limp wrist position so that we kind of don't engage any brachialis as we come up, which would happen if you were kind of turning your wrist up a little more, which most people tend to do. Um, leading with the elbow. I don't want to take all the good ones. I'll, I'll let Aaron jump in here and talk a little bit about it. Uh, <laughs> got for us? Removing complexity in the movement. So one of my most favorite things I've ever done for like lateral delt stuff has been chest supported, mm. um, chest supported, like a, like a supine, um, incline or something like that. It makes it much, much easier, uh, in, in that regard. So, I mean, that I'd say was probably the single one because then you, you don't get the, like, you can't put any momentum into it because your body's like rigid and it's just like lifting, you know, lifting your arms there. Like Brian said, getting wide. If you, if you watch a lot of people do their lateral delt raises, they're like, there's a super very, there's a very large arm bend in the, in, in the elbow and they're almost kind of like, like high pulls or upright rows or something like that. Um, which again are, are a fantastic movement, but it's a lot of people end up like kind of doing like a hybrid bastardization of the two, um, thinking that those are lateral raises and the two just messing around with positioning, right. Is your, are your palms, you know, facing together? Are your palms facing behind you? Different kind of, uh, movements there. And then like Brian said, bands or cables are going to be really nice as well there. Cause then you get a more consistent resistance pattern throughout the movement. Yeah. Being able to get a stretch position, like feel the length and position of a lateral raise is also something that really I hadn't had in, in my delt training until probably the last year. Um, because dumbbells lose all resistance essentially at the bottom of the rep. Um, so I think that, you know, being able to feel the tension throughout the entirety of the rep, and then there is no resting place. So even if you pause at the bottom, it's still under length and position load, just like the, the Schoenfeld study we, we just discussed about the benefit of the length and position. Um, and then the last thing I'll say on delts is uh, for me, and I think it, it really depends on individual anatomy, but for me, I really like staying more in the medial plane, um, which would be like, you know, instead of being completely lateral or instead of being completely front, we're kind of going to stay more in like a 45 degree angle. And I think that, um, the, the logic I've heard from that is the, the chromium process in the, in the shoulder kind of can get in the way when you're trying to stay directly lateral, but when you kind of move in that more medial plane, it's a lot freer to, to rotate naturally. Okay, cool. 
Aaron, anything else to add to that? No, I mean, I would agree with that. I mean, so many people have shoulder problems. I know we both have, Brian. Um, so, it, and that was one thing for me. Like, I don't like a lot of like your straight front raises because it will, my, like some of mine will kind of click and pop and it just doesn't feel good to be going through reps like that. Same thing. Some people have that with going super wide, like straight up from the side, but kind of finding that middle ground like Brian was talking about and that kind of maybe 45 degree angle or something like that uh, generally works better for a majority of people. I love it. So then Aaron hit us with, your like couple favorite side delt movements and then if you have any that you think are overrated people probably wouldn't take a lot of benefit from hit us with what you got so for my side delt movements i really like a um chest supported um kind of like 45 degree angle um you know lateral raise so set up like an incline bench put your chest on it put your knees on the um like seated portion and then lean kind of forward over it and then do them that way. Um, not straight, you know, not, not out in front of you, like a front raise, not completely out to the sides, but just more like a, a middle ground in there. And there's going to be a range of what works best for different people. Um, so I really, really like that one. I also really like a kind of like a, a snatch grip high pull, but with dumbbells. So going wide, you know, keeping my, you know, getting big, right. And kind of doing that. And I'll find, I'll get a really good, that one's going to be more trap as well, but trap in, in kind of um, your, your uh, side delt. I really like those ones as well. Um, those I'd say were probably my two favorites. The ones that I would perform most often. Okay. Brian, what you got for us? Uh, any of my favorite delt movements are not going to be free weight based. Um, I'm pretty much going to stay with cables for, for all of my delt work. So, uh, I also really am a huge fan of the cuff when it comes to delt work, just so that it takes, um, any grip factors out of it. You can really focus on the delt. So, uh, my three favorites are two of them are lying. So I really like lying for many of the reasons that, that Aaron likes the prone position where it just keeps you from being able to cheat. So I'll lie on my back and then pull from the low cable pulley. Um, and I'll do, uh, an upright row. I don't use cuffs for that one. Cause I kind of like the way my hands can rotate into a pronated and then kind of neutral grip position as I come up. And then I really like the cuffs for the lying Y raise. So, you know, kind of coming out, bringing the arms up like a Y, but you're lying on the ground. So there's really no way that you can use momentum. And that's actually the movement that really taught me how to grind through um, slow concentrics on delts because there just is no way to cheat. There's almost no way to use momentum. So when you start reaching that failure point, it's literally a grind to get through it. And I have like a three or four second concentric on the last rep. And that same feeling was then able to be kind of implemented into other delt movements as well. Okay. And I know you've referred to this a couple of times when you're talking about your ability to grind through it, just being the last couple years, you said, um, that's just basically like, okay, I know that. Can you, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Do you remember when uh, you posted a video of your lateral raises and you were just kind of going, 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 and then there was one that went like halfway up and it stopped and Steve Hall reposted that. It was like a year ago or something. Yeah. Anyways, um, so that was like a moment for me too where I thought about it and I was like, I don't know if I've ever failed a lateral raise. Like I just kind of make the rep and then I'm like, that was really hard. So I'm just going to stop the set now. Um, like I said, no change in rep speed. So it would make a lot more sense if you could like watch a video of me doing this, but essentially I'm going, 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 going all the reps at the same speed. Then I get to a point where I'm like, okay, 
if say, say if I do another rep and I don't use any momentum at all, and I just stay as strict as possible, then my rep speed would slow down. But instead of succumbing to that and giving in to this slowing rep speed, I would just use like 1% torso momentum. Then on the next rep, I'd use like 2% torso momentum and then 3% torso momentum. So the speed of the rep going from, you know, the bottom position up to the top position, it wouldn't change. It would be, you know, three quarters of a second, three quarters of a second, three quarters of a second, whatever it is. And then I would finish the set when I was like, okay, I'm using too much torso momentum. And that would be like my sign of like, okay, if I, if I keep going, you know, the cheating's going to get excessive. So I just should stop the set now. Um, versus now I think more about that video that you posted that I just referenced where you're doing your reps and you're not changing your form at all. So you're just kind of going and there's like one rep that's kind of slow and it's like hard to get to the shortened position. And then you go back down and you try the next rep and it makes it halfway up and you're just done. Right. So that's more what I'm talking about is like keeping, keeping technique and execution so strict that it actually is a lateral delt that's failing to to make the rep occur versus using a little bit of momentum, whether it be from the hips or the torso or whatever. Okay. Okay. Great insights. Um, I think we're going to move on from side delts. Let's while we're on delts, rear delts real quick, because I think that's someone that pe- something that people struggle with quite often. Um, Aaron, I'll let you take this one away again. Any couple favorite rear delt movements of yours? Yeah, I'm going to save the one that I think Brian's going to say. So I won't kind of steal his thunder there. My favorite rear delt stuff is going to be cable-based, right? Um, I like going from like a high to a low cable. So if I'm like kind of doing like a, if if you think like the rear delt fly machine, but I feel like doing them both at the same time is a little bit harder to concentrate and get the kind of contraction you want. So I like going from like a higher standpoint down a little bit. Um, in that regard. And then my other favorite one is again, going to be cable based. And that is kind of like a, think about if you were doing like a cable kickback, um, for like a tricep, except keeping your, Mm. your elbow kind of rigid and then just kind of lifting. Mm. That's probably my favorite, um, going for like higher reps around like the 18 to 20 rep range there. I really, really like those. Uh, I would say those are my two favorites there. And then if Brian doesn't say what I think he's going to say, um, I'll kind of take it back over and give a, a third one. I do like, was right. it a, was it a face pull? Oh, it wasn't actually. I, okay. so, so I think for me, those are one I just perform poorly, um, to be completely honest. So I actually don't know what you were going to say, but my favorite real delt movement is a, uh, a row that is, uh, with a, a T arm position at the top. Like so that. is that what you were going to say? Yeah. yeah. That's why, that's so, why I don't want to say it. Okay, cool. Yeah. So I, I, I use any kind of row, honestly, I'm not even biased. Like I, I really, really like, you know, the chest supported T-bar row machine, um, because you can go wide and, you know, you can really maintain this position as, as you go through it, but I'm not biased against like dumbbells. I, I love like a, a Jansen row, you know, where you're draped over the back of the bench and your torso is parallel to the ground and you have those dumbbells kind of come out in T as well. Um, so I love those. And then I actually think that a face pull is just sort of a variation of that in that instead of, you know, in a, in a, in a wide row, you might be finishing right here where the finish pull is, you know, along your clavicle area. And then in a face pull, I think that you just kind of come up a little bit higher. So you get a little bit more of an angle in the upper arm, um, ascending up, but like, it's really kind of just a subtle couple degrees of difference. Um, and I like both of those movements and use them all the time. Cool. So with the rear delts, 
I think that one of the most common struggles people have is they straight up just can't feel them. So what, like when we're trying to train rear delts, what would be, because we have a couple different movements. Aaron, if I'm correct, you're talking about almost like a straight arm pull down, but, or like a tricep push down, we could say, but with arms locked, correct? Yeah, but you would be bent over at the waist. It's it's like this. So you're bending over, you're, you're, you're bent over like with your torso parallel to the ground, and then you're just coming out instead of coming back. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay, got you, got you. Yeah. Cool. And then depending on how it feels on your shoulder, you can even keep your arm a little bit closer to your torso and still just repeat that same kind of arcing uh, motion. Okay. Okay. So, and then we're almost always going to be flying elbows out or like arms kind of in that T pattern when you two are trailing rear delts, correct? Yeah. So the thing with rear delts is that if your elbows pass your midline, much like the lats, then, and you go into scap retraction, then you're going to start recruiting the lower traps and the rhomboids and a bunch of that stuff. So for people that struggle to target their rear rear delts, like when I have them post a video, like 95% of the time, it's because they're, they're coming too far back and they're literally going into scap retraction and it's becoming a rhomboid or low trap movement. So it's much smaller range of motion for the rear delt than people believe. Um, which is why like that row, I finish with the, the arm. It's hard to see, but the arm never passes the midline. It's not like I'm coming back here with that row. It's stopping when the tricep is essentially parallel to the shoulder. So that's going to be the peak contraction for our rear delt. And it turns off if we go into scap retraction. Okay. So for people that are really struggling to feel their rear delts, maybe their upper back is taking over. The problem is actually probably like, Hey, you're trying to go through too much range of motion and elbows are going too far behind the midline. Yeah, for sure. And you really don't need a lot of weight, man. Like I can fry my rear delts with like 15 or 20 pound dumbbells. So when I see people like using 25, 30 pound dumbbells being like, I don't feel my rear delts. I'm like, it's because you're working your upper back. So so yeah, totally. Yeah. It's one of those things where they're going to, for majority of people, lower load, a little bit higher reps and you'll, you'll be able to feel them a little better. Okay. Okay. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of like, I, I would say a face pull is probably my favorite as well. I love like I have a two D handles, but the, the attachment is super long. So I need a very, very wide grip. I'd say that's really probably my favorite rear delt variation. All right, let's move on to a bit of lower body and bring it back to quads, which Aaron was originally talking about. So talk us through, man. What do you feel like were some of the biggest shifts in your quad training that helped? getting in a more mechanically advantageous position to contract them properly. So, um, you know, just kind of going back a little bit, I, I won't kind of steal any Brian's thunder here, but I came from a, you know, CrossFit background for a long time. That's how I know Brian. Um, and we just, we would, I mean, we would front squat. And what's really interesting is front squatting. I would always feel very comfortable and strong in my positioning and then back squat. Everything would just like change. I would feel, very out of position. Um, my hips, you know, and back would kind of take over and I couldn't just get in like a really good position, but I used to be subscribed to that, you know, old school kind of logic that like, Oh, if you want big legs, you just need to squat. So I would like squat and squat and squat and run like squat specialized cycles. And they would never really grow. And it's because like, I just don't have great tract well there. So for, for that, for me, it was really just changing things that I, I, I knew, you know, kind of over time and, moving away from just like using a a standard, you know, barbell back squat and then moving into things like maybe the Smith machine squat where I didn't have to really balance as much and could get deeper into my quads, hack squat, um, some, you know, leg presses if they're designed properly, um, pendulum squat, if that's, you know, available 
or even like a Bulgarian split squat is one of my, definitely one of my favorites. Absolutely. I know I've, I've had very similar. I remember because when I started training, I was very much like, I remember having a conversation with my brother, like I was going to lift for the first day of high school football. And he's like, all right, do you want to get it jacked lower body, upper body, or kind of balanced? Like, Definitely just upper body. So it's like, all right, you just got to bench every day, switch between barbell bench press and double bench press. So that was like my first couple of years of training. And then after that, it was like, fuck, I got to bring these legs up. So I remember seeing, I think it was Lane Norton actually talking a post he had about like how he grew his legs. And it was, well, I realized that when I could squat like 500 pounds or something, my legs would have to be jacked. So that was kind of like the logic that I took to it as well. So it was just like grinding away at these heavy squats to maybe parallel for years and years and years. And okay, nothing is changing. Like my hips hurt, my knees feel terrible, but nothing is actually growing. And like you said, actually understanding like that positioning, whereas to look back now, it's weird that so many people or at least for me that I grinded away for so long, like trying to grow my quads when it's like, okay, if we look at the role of the quad here, if we just go through, if I would like take that through a greater degree of knee flexion, it would make sense. Like I'm basically doing half of the quads range of motion of that. And as we talked about a lot, like the lengthened position of this is much more beneficial. Like I'm basically, if you're only, if you're cutting your squat off a parallel, then I'm not even really getting it into that length of the position at the bottom. Yeah. I actually wonder if you were to just do squats in the bottom range, kind of like that study with leg extensions, if we would see like similar results from that, like not even going to the top range because you actually lose like at the top of the squat, you're losing tension. So it's interesting that this is kind of something bodybuilders used to do back in the day. Like they would just avoid locking out the top of the rep, but they'd go through the majority of the range of motion at the bottom and kind of an effective maneuver maneuver there. No, absolutely. Um, so Aaron hit us within like top two quad movements for you. Mm-hmm. So I would say that's going to be a Bulgarian split squat. I really like that cause it's accessible to everyone. You know, you can, um, you know, I don't care if you're in a garage gym, you know, functional fitness facility, you know, you're more, you're more global gym. Everyone's going to have access to that. Um, the reason I really, really like it. And I should say that I like it supported, right? So I'm going to generally load it with one dumbbell in the same hand to, um, hold on to something or I, I like something fixed, right? I've seen videos of where people do it with like a, a stick or a broom or something like that. I find that a little bit more difficult. I want something fixed. Um, uh, you don't want to like grab onto it, but just to help you balance, you don't want to be focusing around part of the movement going to balance because then you're going, there's going to be less effort that you can put into loading, loading that muscle. So I really, really like a Bulgarian split squat there. Um, making sure that I'm getting in a, in a really, uh, advantageous knee position, getting my knee out over my toes, keeping my foot flat on the ground, using full range of motion there. So I really like those. And then I would say my second favorite is going to be uh, a combination of like, let's say a hack squat or a pendulum squat. Now, hard part is the pendulum squats are pretty rare right now. They're only found in generally like your big bodybuilding gyms, but hack squats are a little bit more uh, common in your global style gyms. Um, now if you do not have either of those, a Smith machine squat is going to very similarly mimic a hack squat, uh, in that your back is supported. So if you think about a squatting movement, something that's very difficult with it is you have to maintain your own balance with a load on your back with the pendulum squat, with the Smith machine squat, with the hack squat, you don't have to worry about balancing anything and you can kind of mechanically position yourself out of balance to where you can load the quads more, more easily. 
um, what would be the kind of the next check down for that if you're in like a, a um, home gym functional fitness facility is going to be the kind of a roller, like the foam roller hack squat where with the dumbbells or something like that. And that was probably one of the coolest things to come out of the training quarantine is this is like a now a very viable thing for a lot of people. And again, just allows you to mimic that back supportive position, really get into uh, deep knee flexion uh, and really just slam the quads really. So I would say those are, it's, it's a, it's the, it's the movement that you just can just repeat in a different, uh, few different mechanisms there. Absolutely. Brian, couple favorite quad movements. Yeah. Um, well I can definitely say that I didn't really learn how to train quads effectively until quarantine. Um, I think that because I was so limited with the equipment that I had available, I was forced to actually figure out how to execute movements in a way that allowed me to, to target the area that I wanted to target. So, yeah. So even in the CrossFit days with quads, I never really quite understood how to train them. Like there wasn't, that wasn't really the purpose, right? Like we were training, we were training to move a squat from below parallel to lockout position. And that was, that was all we had to do. Um, and Aaron and I both being extremely posterior dominant in our, in our makeup. And we, you know, I'm sure we'll get to this when we talk about hamstrings and deadlifts and stuff too, but, uh, we both just tended to, to use our glutes and, and our erectors for, for everything that we could. Um, so it really took a lot of ego to, to get rid of that. And I even remember, you know, coming out of CrossFit and understanding that my legs were my weakest part. Like I had erectors galore. I had my upper body was as swole as needed to be. Um, but my legs just were very underdeveloped for comparably to my upper body. So coming out of, of CrossFit, I was in, you know, a Globo commercial gym training for hypertrophy. And I still had this attachment to these like deadlift and stiff legged deadlift numbers and squat numbers and, and all these things. So even when I began leg pressing and hack squatting, it's like, I still had this vision in my mind of like, I need to be able to do X amount of weight because this guy's doing seven plates and I need to do seven plates or whatever it was. So I was still in this mindset of just moving weight from point A to point B, even though I was putting myself in a more advantageous setup position, being in a hack squat or a leg press, I was still completing the movements in a manner that wasn't prioritizing my quads. So then we fast forward to quarantine and I don't really have a choice. I have to learn how to train my quads because the only thing I have is foam roller, dumbbell hack squats and split squat variations or like heels elevated goblet squats or something like that. So I was like, if I don't have this much weight, then the, the only tool that I really have to use here is the ability to, to learn how to do it biomechanically correct to optimize quads. And, um, I put that picture on my Instagram a couple months ago, comparing like pre quad pre quarantine quads to post quarantine quads. And the picture looks ridiculous. And a lot of it is angles because one of them is closer up and it's angled slightly this way. And the other one is further away and straight on and whatever, whatever. But it looks like I put three inches on my thighs, which is not true. But what I did do was I did learn how to actually train my quads properly and make them the limiting factor in the way that, that I execute movements. So it's all a lot of the same stuff that Aaron said. Um, but when we get into the movements that I really like, it's, uh, it's hack squat variations, it's pendulum squat variations, it's leg press. Um, you guys know I have that like hack leg press hybrid machine at home. So I'm messing around with like seat angles and foot positionings and stuff like that to try to optimize um, knee flexion. And, uh, 
different heels elevated variations and split squat variations and stuff like that. So I don't think that, you know, we need to reinvent the wheel. It's really less about exercise selection and more about exercise execution. Okay. So if there's a couple of things that most people can do to make the quads more the rate limiter, I think like one of the most common issues is like, Hey, I'm doing back squats and I just feel fucking exhausted after this, but my quads don't feel worked. Right. There are a couple of common tweaks you two help clients make to like, okay, we can't make quads the rate limiter now. Is there like anything that stands out there? Front squat. What'd you say? It said front squat. Mm. I actually think the front squat is an awful hypertrophy movement. I feel like because <laughs> well, it I, chokes you out. <laughs> well, I feel like the midline is going to fail before your quads do. Like your elbows are going to drop, your shoulders are going to round forward, and your quads are still going to be unfatigued. Maybe that's that. That's a me thing. I guess everyone you know is is built a little bit differently, but that's that's yeah my belief on the front squat. I definitely do agree with that. Um, well, uh, elevating your heels in the in the back squat. Um, and that is something, and really just slowing your con, your concentric down will really start to, to eccentric legs. Sorry, yeah, eccentric. Yeah, slowing yeah. eccentric down. Yeah, so I think um, slowing down the eccentric allows you to actually connect with your quads and feel the process of them lengthening, and that's really the biggest problem with fast eccentrics in like a deep squat squat type movement is that, you know, as you're lowering yourself down, you aren't just lowering yourself for the purpose of lowering yourself. You just need to get to the bottom and then stand back up again. Right? Like you're literally lowering your, lowering yourself down in such a manner, which really comes down to controlling the pelvis. Like if you can keep your pelvis in a stable position throughout the, uh, throughout the entire rep, then, then you can actually focus on sending the knees forward and getting ankle flexion versus just dropping to the bottom and then standing back up. So when you sit to the, get to the bottom of whatever your squat pattern movement is, you should be sending your knees as far forward as you can and trying to lengthen the position between your patella and your hip as much as possible to feel that deep stretch that's happening through the different muscles of the quad. And, um, you know, as we know as well, you know, the rec fem rectus femoris, it crosses both the, the kneecap and the hip joint. It's the only one of the four quad muscles that does that. Um, so because a squat pattern movement, isn't going to train the rec fem fully. Uh, so we need a movement like a leg extension or a sissy squat or something like that to fully lengthen, um, the, the rec fem. So there's another kind of perspective on that too. Question for you, Brian, mm-hmm. when you just said sissy squat, are you talking about the like, uh, can you just elaborate a little bit more? Cause what immediately when you said that came to my mind was like that sissy squat machine thing where it like locks your feet and ankles in place. Um, is that what you're talking about or more yeah, like yeah. the, the freestanding one? Yeah. So the freestanding one is, is going to allow you to maintain that completely open hip angle, which is going to make knee flexion occur on its own. Uh, I do like the sissy squat where you're kind of trapped in there and then you lean back and come forward, but that one does have a little bit of hip flexion and extension occurring with it as well. So to, from what I understand to fully lengthen the rec fem, you do need to, to have that occur in absence of hip extension. Gotcha. Absolutely. So basically we want like sissy squat or leg extension variation, and then some type of squat or lunge pattern that basically allows you to get a lot of knee bend. And then when we're executing the movement, which I think for most people is the biggest shift. And I don't know if like, I feel like in the last year there's been a lot more and I don't know if maybe it's just cause I follow in one and like 
Pat Davidson and a couple of people like this so much more now than I used to. But I feel like I never like heard anyone even talking about like everyone coaching the squad. It was still like, even though we know like, okay, knees over toes isn't bad. Still, everyone was like, sit back in your squat, sit back mm-hmm. in your squat, sit back in your squat. And it seems like the last year, like there's really, and again, maybe it's just a shift in people that I'm following. I don't know if you guys have seen that as well, but um, it's been very interesting because it does seem like there's been a big shift in, and it's straight up, it's probably just the people I follow. Yeah, it's a different movement almost. So it, it, it gets confusing because the common sentiment that everybody puts out there, like a lot of my clients come from like a mind pump listenership. And those guys are all about squat, bench, deadlift, press, like do the basic movements, but it's because of who they're talking to. Like they're talking to millions and millions of people. And as we all know, like anybody who has millions of followers, isn't talking about nuance and subtlety. Like they're trying to speak to as many people as they can at one time. Um, So I think that when you are squatting to squat, yeah, sending your butt back and engaging your full body and it's, it's full capacity is, is probably going to be the safest and most effective way for you to train multiple muscles at the same time while you're squatting the, this version of squat that, that we're talking about with your heels elevated and sending the knees forward and keeping your hips under you and all these things, these are all elements that are going to decrease your ability to lift load. So it really becomes a matter of like, for me, like communicating with my clients and trying to make them understand that what they're doing is not a squat. You, if you can squat 400 pounds, you do this movement with like 185. Like you, you're not actually squatting in the same way. So when you start reframing the way that you think about this movement, um, I think that you're going to get a lot more out of it. Absolutely. And that's funny, uh, the direction you went with that, because that was very much like, I remember when I first started training, I didn't know a lot about it. Um, my quads got pretty jacked just from like doing <laughs> quarter squats. It was like a very like quad dominant squat. But then actually mind pump was, <laughs> I got super deep into mind pump as I started training people in like 2016. That was like where I was learning so much about training and like very much it was like, yeah, sit back in the squat, sit back in the squat. And it, it does make sense for like a gin pop, like, okay, this lady comes in, she trains with me twice a week her knees are wrecked and like when she, when I tell her to squat, she basically falls over her toes, right? Like maybe she's going to benefit from like relearning this pattern in a different manner. And that's like the context of that I think is so important, but it's like for hypertrophy, for your quads specifically, you're probably best served to let that drive or let your knees drive over your toes. And again, try to stay a bit more upright. Um, anything else to add on quads from either of you guys? Last thing, I guess I will say, I think for, and this is something, you know, kind of what Brian said, it was, it was years of me squatting heavy, you know, 400 pounds and stuff. And I never really got the hypertrophy out of it. Um, growing legs hurts, like not, not from like a, like a patella pain or, or hip pain. Cause I mean, being completely honest at 33 years old, you know, my knees feel the best they've ever felt since I've pretty much been an adult. Mm-hmm. And that's with a patella repair surgery, you know, like five years ago or not even five years ago, like four years ago, three years ago. And I mean, it's just higher volumes, right? That, that lactic acid, lactic acid kind of threshold buildup and just discomfort. Like it is not comfortable, you know, growing a, a, a set of legs, you have to push yourself. And that is something that I really wasn't prepared for, for a long time like that. You know, I would cut a rep when those, when that's that pain set in and I was like, Oh, I don't like that. I'm done. You know, right. it's a little bit different when you're doing like triceps or biceps or something like that. Cause it's just a smaller muscle group, but your quads are massive. 
And when you get that kind of discomfort through such a large part of your body, it's not a great feeling, but it's one of those things like it's very rewarding now. And I know that, you know, it, my, I, I kind of take, I don't want to say pride, but in my ability to push and continue to get reps because like that pain can set in on like rep seven, but that doesn't mean that I'm done on rep seven or rep eight. I could have an honest 12 or 13 reps in. It's just, you just have to keep pushing and let your actual like, you know, technical failure or whatever be your stopping point, just not the discomfort. I love it. And that's, yeah. go for it. And I was just going to say, and then as that pain sets in, especially because a lot of quad movements are compound based is making sure that, that you don't give in to that intense desire to shift out of the quads and let your glutes and your erectors and the hips assist you in that movement. Because one subtle little movement out of the bottom of your squat where your knees kick back and your hips shift up and you're suddenly taking all that tension out of the quads and you're failing to kind of meet your objective. Absolutely. And I think that's so, so much of the value of like, Aaron, you talked about like hand supported split squat and Brian, I know you do those, or you were progressing those for quite a while as well. Mm -hmm. Like safety bar split squat with hand support or like a hack squat or a pendulum squat. It is so much, I feel like, like for me, even with like, like a barbell back squat or even like a safety bar squat, I'm a big fan of like a Hatfield, Hatfield squat mm -hmm. actually for hypertrophy as well, which is very similar to like the hand support, but you have the safety bar on your back. It's so easy with like a free weight, like barbell or again, even like a front squat, safety bar squat. I feel like at least for me personally to just shift out of that positioning. And again, it's like, I'm gas at the end. The fatigue from this is pretty high, but like, I don't feel like I did that much to my quads, which I think is why like there's such a, and I don't know if like the niche that we're in now is so much like this, but I know for the longest time it was at the end, probably coming from like a more mind pump background background, which again, they put out amazing information, but if it's like, only barbells and dumbbells like machines that are stupid there's there's definitely some utility for hypertrophy absolutely yeah i mean machines the n1 guys would talk you into basically saying that like you don't need a barbell and you could pretty much <laughs> just 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 lift dumbbells and, and machines for the rest of your life so i think a lot of its perspective and a lot of it's you know how good you are at actually using the movement for its purpose absolutely cool let's get into hamstrings then so Brian, take this one away for us. Couple of it sounded like you've had a couple of big realizations within your hamstring training in the last couple of years, correct? Yeah, let's go back again to like the CrossFit days and use the same kind of reference that I was talking about with the squats, moving weight from point A to point B. Because Aaron and I both were we had strong deadlifts for our gym. We were both over 515, 520, something like that. Um and, you know, we would rep, what, 455 for three to five reps, something like that. Like, we were strong at deadlifts. Yeah. The thing is, though, that we we weren't doing deadlifts for hypertrophy of the hamstrings or glutes or whatever it was. We were trying to pick weight up and put weight back down. Um, and that same ego of, oh, I can deadlift 500 plus, I can do triples at 455 or sets of 10 at 405 or whatever it is, those same sentiments carried with me all the way into – you know, my transition into hypertrophy work. So I even remember at the commercial gym, uh, the gym in San Diego, it's like IFBB central. And I remember over there and, um, just starting out and I was like, okay, I'm not going to deadlift anymore for the first time in like 20 years. I'm going to take deadlifts out and I'm going to do stiff legged deadlifts. Right. And so in my mind, I'm like, cool. I don't need to have ego with this. It's a new movement. You know, I'm really going to focus on my hamstrings and all this stuff. And so I, you know, I started at 315 and I made my reps and it just kept going up and up. And eight weeks later, I'm doing like stiff legged deadlifts at 365. And I look back at those videos now from like three years ago 
And I'm just like, man, like, yes, I was doing stiff legged deadlifts at 365, but that, that back had a little bit of flexion in it. And like, you know, my knees were bending a little too much and it was turning into a little bit more of a deadlift because my ego just wanted it to. And it wasn't until I really, really actually in the last, again, the last few months that I actually reached a point where as fatigue set in, instead of going into slight back flexion and then slight more back flexion and then more back flexion, like that would be how fatigue would set in for me. And it wasn't until the last few months of actually understanding how to control my pelvis in such a manner that my back remained neutral. And, you know, that same thing I was talking about with the delts where the rep speed would slow down. My rep speed would never slow down in the past on, on deadlift variations because I would just compromise form so that I wouldn't have to fight through those grinding reps. And now I do fight through those grinding reps and it's a lot easier to manage fatigue because the weight isn't as heavy because the stimulus is much more directed into the hamstrings and the glutes. Um, I've even started using the, the hip banded thing so that a rear hip banded so that it kind of cues sending the hips back. Um, and all of these kind of little tips and tricks have been huge in allowing me to stay within the active range of motion. So, um, I think in its inherent nature, a stiff legged deadlift takes you beyond your active range of motion for the hamstrings. Like you reach a point where your hips can no longer continue going back, but yet your torso continues to drop in the pursuit of that bar reaching the ground. Um, where an RDL would be a much more applicable movement to stay in an active range of motion because as soon as your hips no longer are, are going back horizontally, that's the end of your range. And then, you know, hips close, come forward, create hip extension, and that's going to be the, the top of the movement. So once I kind of figured out that aspect of it and realized that the tension that you feel in the hamstrings is not really about the amount of weight that I'm using that I feel much more tension in my hamstrings at 315 pounds than I do at 380. Um, so, you know, for the same amount of reps. So, you know, it's tough when you look at your logbook and your ego says shit, like four months ago, I was doing 380 for eight and now I'm doing 315 for eight. But like the truth is that I get a much better stimulus and less fatigue that way. So it's a better hypertrophy movement. I would say a 315 pound RDL or SDL is still a pretty fucking heavy one. Um, what are your cues you're thinking about? Like you personally, when you're going into yeah. your, like, do you prefer an RDL personally? Do you prefer an RDL or a stiff legged deadlift? So I was on team stiff legged deadlift for a really long time, but then I, I just was incurring a lot of low back fatigue from it because there just isn't a lot of um, isolated hamstring tension at the bottom of the rep. Like, yes, you'll feel that stretch position, but it's mostly through the torso dropping. So I really think that, you know, to minimize systemic fatigue, to increase your SFR, right? Your stimulus to fatigue mm -hmm. ratio, that stopping when your hips stop moving back horizontally is going to be a prudent move for most people. Um, but yeah, so my cues are basically to think about moving the hips horizontally. So I am essentially, I'm fighting my chest up. So I'm not like craning my neck to look up but I'm keeping a neutral head position and I'm trying to keep a proud chest. And essentially what I'm trying to do is send my hips back. Um, I, I posted a video the other day uh, called the wall drill, which is basically stand with your butt to a wall and then send your butt back toward the wall and see how far away you can be from the wall and still get your ass to touch the wall. 
And that's literally what I'm thinking about when I do any sort of hip hinge movement, whether it's a good morning, RDL, anything like that. Um, I'm literally just thinking about sending my hips back as far as I can. Once the hips can no longer go back anymore, then I uh, send them forward. And I think about it like uh, opening a car door and closing a car door and opening and closing. And that's like the vision that I have in my brain as I'm going through these reps, open the car door, close the car door. And that's just my hips kind of moving horizontally the whole time. I love it. Straker, you have anything to add as far as execution goes for hamstrings? It really, like Brian kind of briefly alluded to, a lot of it comes down to your pelvic position. So depending on like how, how you have it shifted, you can shift that kind of load into the low back or basically into like the glutes or hamstrings. And it's, it's kind of nuanced and it takes like, I mean, like Brian said, like we've been lifting for years and years and years. And these are things that we're just now getting to in the last like year, you know, to 18 months. Um, because there is like a, it's a spectrum of, you know, your quality of performance of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that's a, a new one for me. Like I, for years avoided, you know, good mornings. I'm not going to lie. I still avoid good mornings because I don't <laughs> perform them well, but I also avoided like RDLs for a long time. And I go, Oh, I like stiff legged deadlifts. Um, right. and it was kind of one of those things. And I don't know if it was so much ego, but I was like, no, like there's a reason I don't like these. It's because I can't perform them well. So just kind of digging into why a little bit. And a lot of times that's taking the weight off, right? So, I mean, you should be able to do perform an RDL, you know, with no barbell or like no weight in your hands and be able to feel that tension in your hamstrings. And then what's kind of a a battle is like, as the weight starts coming up on there, like, can you still find that same tension? And if you're reaching a point where you can't, the load's too high and your movement is compromised enough or to some degree or sufficient enough to a degree that you're not finding that anymore. And it's just like hip hinging. People just think it's bending over at the waist, but it, I mean, I mean, it is, you know, to some degree, but a lot of what Brian is saying, it's, it's pushing your hips back, maintaining that position, um, keeping ham, the, the basically tension where you want it to. So again, it's like, it's nuanced. It's going to be different, you know, by person and what your levers are like and stuff. And you know, your, your core stability as well, because there is going to be a component of that. Um, but it's just one of those things like you need a lot of, decent practice at it of performing it really, really well to get a lot of the like hypertrophic benefit from it to perform it, you know, really well for your anatomy. Absolutely. And you've both kind of alluded to like how important pelvic positioning is here. Can either of you elaborate on that a bit? Like what, what are we looking for there? Brian, you're going to have to do this one. (laughs) So uh, posterior pelvic tilt, right. would be kind of like what happens when you ra- when you end up going into back flexion and you end up rounding over a little bit, your posterior pelvis is going to, to tilt posteriorly. Um, and then in contrast, anterior pelvic tilt would put your back into like an arched position. Mm-hmm. And we don't really want either of them. I mean, I would say that if, if you had to choose one, I would lean toward, I would, I would lean toward anterior pelvic tilt because I think being in an arch is probably safer than being in like a slight rounded back position. But, but ultimately what we want is a neutral pelvis position. And the thing is that throughout a dynamic movement, like an RDL or any hip hinge movement, you have to control your pelvis because it wants to shift into posterior. You have to fight it to remain neutral. And that's why I kind of was leaning more toward like anterior pelvic tilt, because if you at least try to be an anterior pelvic tilt, it's probably going to shift into neutral. But if you are really bad at pelvic control and it starts in neutral, then it may shift into posterior and then you're just in a shit storm. 
um, midway through your set. So um, that would be that would be kind of my interpretation of pelvis control throughout that movement. Cool. Yeah, and I know for me, one of the things that's helped the most, and this was something Steve and I were talking through because for the longest time I was like, I don't feel shit with my RDLs. Again, like I feel like my back gives out eventually. But actually, similar to what you said there, I like my cue that I think about is I actually try to think I've recorded this a lot of times. So it very much it turns out my back just looks neutral the whole time. But I really try to cue almost I'm trying to create an anterior pelvic tilt. And again, like in the video, it just looks like I have a very neutral spine. But then like, the end point of my RDL is when I feel like I can't keep that anymore. Yes. And that's so much like that has helped so much with my hamstrings. But again, I think it's a fine line because it's not like I'm really hyperextending my back either. Right. I think if you start in too much of anterior pelvic tilt, you literally can't maintain it mm-hmm. and, and you're going to shift into neutral um, really quickly. And I think that it can be, it can be a little bit disconcerting if you shift into that, like super rapidly in the middle of a rep. So as long as you have decent pelvic control, I like the idea of like really just cueing like maybe a very slight anterior pelvic tilt, but that when it shifts into neutral, it doesn't feel like something's changing drastically within your movement. Right. Um, cause I've seen that happen where someone's like trying so hard to hold anterior that it doesn't even go into neutral. It just goes immediately into posterior cause they just lose it. Right. Um, so anyways, that, that would be one thought there. And then I think if you're talking about hamstring training, you have to talk about like leg curls as well. I mean, you can't just hip hinge. So, um, you know, the seated leg curl, there's been at least one, maybe two studies now showing the superiority of the, the seated leg curl over the lying leg curl. Um, given that it trains, it trains the hamstring through the lengthened position, uh, versus the lying leg curl, which will train the hamstring a little bit more through the shortened position. And then, um, I also believe that the lying leg curl trains the biceps femoris portion of the hamstring a little bit more, which is, uh, I think the long one that runs through, through the hamstring, but you don't actually need to train that via the lying leg curl. If you're doing a hip hinge, because the hip hinge also trains it in the same manner. So if you have a seated leg curl and a hip hinge, then you're totally good. Um, if you just have a lying leg curl and a hip hinge, I think you're still going to be missing out on a little bit of, of hamstring training. Beautiful. Cool. We are getting pretty short on time here. So let's move it on to glutes. Um, I th- one of the most common questions I get from clients, I'm sure you two have heard this a lot is okay. I'm doing like lots of lunges, squats, deadlifts, et cetera, but my glutes aren't growing. Common approach that either of you two take to that. Man, this one, so this one's hard for me because I would say if I, if there was one muscle group that I just trained unconsciously, it's glutes. I go on walks. If I'm walking up a hill, by the time I get to the top, like my ass is on fire. <laughs> and it's like, I don't, and like, I'm not even trying to. So that one is, is hard for me because it's for, for years ago, like, I, I never did any glute stuff. And like, I mean, full disclosure, when someone puts like barbell hip thrusts in a program, I'm like, I'm not fucking doing it. Like, there's just no need, like, it doesn't need to get any bigger. Um, any kind of lunging movement, my, my glutes are, are going to be lit up, especially like a, a Bulgarian split squat. Even though I keep my knee out as far as I can, I try and bias the quad. I wake up in the morning and my shit is fucking lit up. So this one is hard for me because it's one of those things I naturally have a hard time not training. Okay. Brian. 
Yeah, I don't really train glutes either. I've had two periods of time over the last three or four years where I've put in a glute movement into my program. And I really just end up treating it like an afterthought, like calves or abs. And I end up skipping it most of the time. Um, for much the same reason that Aaron says, like if I have a single leg squat variation in my program, I always perform it purposefully with the intent to be quads and my glutes still get the same level of fatigue and stimulus that my quads do. Um, and if I perform it with the purpose of it being like a glute dominant split squat, I get almost no quads. So I have to perform it in a quad dominant fashion just to kind of even out that stimulus across both muscle groups. Um, I also like for as much hype as the hip thrust gets, I really don't know if the hip thrust is like a great glute movement. Like it's got so much momentum associated with it. Like you're trying to throw this weight through the ceiling. It seems like through the explosive manner in which it's executed, that there's going to be inevitably some like hamstring and quad contributing to it. And, um, I feel like if you're going to train the glutes, like doing something like, um, they, like what cast does with the cast glute bridge, um, or using like a smaller range of motion where you're staying a little bit more in the active range of the glutes, um, at least allows you to kind of squeeze versus thrust. And I think that that's a subtle, but important distinction because the glutes really are like a squeezing muscle, like to train the medial glute, you have to squeeze the glute. And if you're just aggressively thrusting weight toward the sky, I don't think that there's as much of a squeeze going on as what would be optimal. Okay, absolutely. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but for like a for a movement like that, like a hip thrust where, okay, the primary benefit is, it's going to train the overload the glute in the shortened position. Mm -hmm. We probably don't want to be launching into a movement right there like that. Is that correct? Because like from what I've understood, some of the momentum of like launching into that shortened position, actually like you don't have to work as hard in that position. Does that make sense? Cause you get there and then you're just stable and in, in like a right, tabletop kind of position like, or kind of like if I'm like really launching from the bottom of my lateral race. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, I think that's exactly the issue. That's the root of the problem is that it changes what is a glute specific movement into like a full body movement. Okay, absolutely. Cool. So it sounds like you guys both naturally glutes come pretty easily. Um, if there were a couple movements for like a client that wanted to focus more on glutes, Brian, would you have a few favorites there? I'd probably start them with a single leg um, glute bridge. I really like that because most people don't even need any weight when they first start. So you're essentially, you're going to have your back on a bench like you would in like a hip thrust. Um, but you're just going to uh, you're just going to stay more in that active range where maybe you're going like here and here, so you're not going all the way down and then thrusting back up, but you're kind of just here and here, and then your off leg. So you can do one of two things with your off leg. I like this movement because you can either put that off leg in a B stance where the kind of heel is resting on the ground if you need that for it support or if you're more advanced you can lift the off leg um, and you can really put a little bit more stress onto the working glute cool striker yeah the i would say my favorite one um, if i wanted to or, or will help with someone a front foot elevated reverse lunge mm. um, so with that front foot elevated basically as you lunge back your your shin stays pretty much vertical and then whatever that front foot the glute on that front foot gets a deep stretch at the bottom and then kind of just in your positioning as you're driving up through the, through the lunge, like almost all that pressure is in your heel based on your weight distribution. Mm -hmm. 
and that one will really pretty much let your glutes up. And not, not, a, not a huge elevation, maybe three to five inches, maybe six inches, depending on some of your limb length and stuff. But that's a really, really good one. I like the loaded with dumbbells too, because you can keep a more vertical torso as opposed to like leaning forward or whatever. Mm. I love it. I'm a big fan of that movement as well. All right, let's end this discussion with lats, which I think is a very common one that people really struggle with. So for the two of you, any like major breakthroughs um, as far as lat training goes with like, okay, this is something I need to do differently or like this is what I was doing wrong before. Any like major insights you two have had in the last few years? Strager. Yeah. So I would say in the, so this one's kind of, I think it's a little bit difficult for Brian and I, cause it's both our favorite muscle group. You know, mm-hmm. it's probably the bo- the best for both of ours, but we just over, you know, me like 17 years, Brian over 20, we've just done a lot of it. You know, when it's your favorite muscle group and you're, you don't get those pukey feelings when you're, you're training lats or anything like that. It's always just been fun. Um, but I'd say in the, in the most, in the past few recent years, like after learning a little bit more about like, you know, mechanics and things like that, there's, you know, there's like more lat specific things, right. Then there's going to be some more like, you know, um, you know, like lateral delt specific things, more rhomboid specific things, and just understanding that and making sure that like every time you train back, if you're only doing vertical pulling, like you're missing the, you know, uh, you're missing parts of your back and just, there's like, you know, composing your back training of the different types of movements to kind of round out your opportunity to create the more most, you know, hypertrophic response for your goal. Cool. Love it. So for many, many years, there was this sentiment that horizontal pulling trained thickness and vertical pulling trained width, right? So vertical pulls then are for your lats and horizontal pulls are for mid back, upper back, whatever. That's so wrong on so many levels. And I think that that's been the biggest realization for me in the last couple of years is that I can train lats from a horizontal pole position just as well as I can train them from a vertical pole position. And I can train mid back or upper back from a vertical position as much as I can train it from a horizontal position. So realizing that essentially what area of your back you want to target is dictated by the way that your elbow travels in relation to your torso. It just like opens up a whole world of possibilities, right? So we know when the elbow comes straight out like this, that like we talked about earlier with rear delts, that we're going to get a lot more like rhomboid, rear delt, low trap, stuff like that. When the elbow comes in directly into the side like this, we're going to be able to bias a lot more of that lat, especially if we make sure to, that the elbow doesn't pass the midline. So we're not going into scap retraction as the elbow comes through. Um, I really like the cue of trying to tuck your elbow into your back pocket, which, um, which works really well for me to get that contraction in the iliac lat on the lower side. Um, and then I, uh, I realized that if you train somewhere in the middle, so you're not in a completely you know, T position and you're not in this tight position, but maybe you're letting that elbow travel more at like a 45 degree angle and you can really hammer portions of the mid and upper back extremely well with that 45 degree angle. So I think that when I look back on the way that I trained back for, for years and years and years and years, I probably did almost all of my movements with that 45 degree angle. Like I never really was out here in the T and I was never really in tight in here. Um, 
And I ended up with pretty solid back development staying at 45 degrees. So I think like any of the discussions that we have here, you know, it all comes down to that 1% or that 2% at the end of your training career, as far as like, like the mind pump guys, right? Like they're never going to talk about, well, if you want rear delts, you're going to put your elbow like this. And if you want lats, you're going to put your elbow like this. They're just going to be like, you should probably do barbell rows and dumbbell rows because they're really good for you. Right. right. And at the end of the day, like that's going to get you 98% of the way there. So for us with the nuance, we need to pay attention to these things and train through these different elbow positions so that we recruit the full spectrum of back development. Okay. I love it. So then from there, just t- current top two favorite lap movements, what you got? Brian, take it away. Yeah, I'll go. I'll go. So, uh, lat movement. So I, I really, really like the, the one arm, um, kind of 45 degree elevation on the cable. So you don't want that thing to be directly overhead and you also don't want it to be like directly in front, but you want to have like the arm up at a 45 degree angle. And then we're essentially just going to drive that elbow down into the waistline. That's my favorite, uh, like lower lat iliac lat movement at the moment. And then I've become a a huge fan of rack pull-ups with rotational handles. So I like the rack pull-up because you can perform it either in like an upper back format where you kind of lean back and it almost becomes like half horizontal row, half vertical pull, and you can just rip apart the upper back. Or you can kind of shift the hips under, keep the torso slightly uh, braced down, and you can do your your rack pull-ups more in like that that variety where the elbows don't pass the midline and they drive into the back pocket and it can become like a lat biased movement. Um, and I think people like super sleep on the benefit of rack pull-ups. Like they are hard. They can be overloaded. You can put weight on your lap. Like they're, they're just extremely effective. I love it. Straker, you got a top two. Yeah. I would definitely want to reiterate what Brian said around the, the rack pulls. I won't use that as one of mine, but I love that movement for sure. Um, right now I would say a newer one for me that I'm really enjoying adding into my training is trap bar rows. Mm. Um, this, this, this kind of, um, neutral grip, right. Just adds a little bit of a different wrinkle. I really, really like those. And then I also, I love assisted pull-ups. And what's really funny is like, I mean, I can do pull-ups, you know, and we're, you know, why would I go to assisted pull-ups? You can turn them into an incredible lap, you know, um, movement, because I don't have to worry about, maneuvering my body around the bar or anything like that, which changes the angles. I can just focus on driving that lat straight down and staying in that active range of motion. And then if I want to do them for 12 to 15, I can modulate my weight to get me there. If I want to do them for 15 to 20, I can, you know, give myself a little bit support to get them in there. And it just, I mean, those ones will light me up there. Sometimes I only do that movement. Um, and then my, and my back is, is really toast there. So I would say those two are, uh, I really, really enjoy. I love it. Such an insightful conversation. I know the listeners are going to take a ton from this. I know you boys also have to run here pretty quickly. So Stryker, will you tell everyone where they can find you? Yeah. So, uh, easiest places are going to be my, uh, website and that's going to be strakernutritionco.com. Uh, Instagram, Aaron underscore Straker. And, uh, like we talked about briefly as well, the podcast eat, train, prosper. Perfect. And Brian, will you, anything you want to plug in where people can find you as well? For sure. Yeah. Uh, it's quite unfortunate that we didn't get to get to arms for the listeners, <laughs> you know, cause like everyone wants to hear about the biceps and the triceps, right? We'll have to, uh, we'll have Love to come back and do a round too. Yeah. Um, so you guys can find me at evolved training systems.com. 
or at Brian Borstein on Instagram. And then if you don't know how to spell my name, you can just type in evolved training systems in Instagram and you'll stumble across me that way as well. Perfect. I will link all that up in the show notes. And again, thank you too so much for being here. Thanks, bro. Thanks.